Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to All the Wiser. I'm Kimmy Culp. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. For every inspiring interview you hear, we donate $2,000 to charities around the world. I believe in the power of storytelling to inspire us all to think differently about the world around us. So I have combed the country for some of the most jaw-dropping stories you have ever heard. People who have been to the brink and back, stories of survival against all odds, and whose lives have been changed in unthinkable ways. If you listened to last week's episode with Steve Gleason, today is part two. Today, I sit down with Steve's wife, my college roommate, and one of my all-time favorite people, Michelle Verisco. As always, she is raw, she is vulnerable, and never fails to make me laugh. Michelle talks about the day her husband was diagnosed with ALS and given two to five years to live. Less than a month later, she finds out she is pregnant with their first baby. We dive into what it's really like to care for your newborn baby and a husband who can no longer care for himself. We also talk about the realities of living under the spotlight, how the depths of her pain inspired her work as an artist, and what it's like to sit in a packed theater at Sundance watching a film about your life. Literally 500 people watching you give birth to your baby. So here is today's interview with Michelle. I know you will fall in love with her. Everyone does. Welcome, Michelle, and thank you for being here on All the Wiser. Michelle and I have been friends for 25 years. We met in college, and we are currently in New Orleans, cuddled up on a couch, which feels very fitting. We're awkwardly holding microphones because I forgot the stands, so we'll see how this goes. So yeah, let's get started, Michelle. You have been through a crazy journey over the past eight years, and I want to start from the beginning. Tell me about when you met Steve and what were the things you were most attracted to? I met Steve in 2004 at the New Orleans Jazz Fest, which is a a music festival here in New Orleans. And the minute he walked into the Jazz Fest and I met him, I thought he was probably the cutest guy I've seen ever, or at least in that year. I had some preconceived notions that he was going to be a cheese ball NFL Saints player. That's what I thought he was because I'd seen him play. Um, But he'd cut his hair. He reminded me, I think the first day I met him, he reminded me of Peter Pan and just had a young free spirit. I could tell he was smart. He was up, he was down to do anything. And he was, uh, he was hot as shit. That's what I remember. I remember you introduced me to him and I'm like, damn, he is hot. (laughs) Score, Michelle. Yeah. You guys got engaged and eventually married. Did you have dreams or expectations? And I think we all do of what your life was going to be like together. I think I always knew uh, choosing Steve and him choosing me that we would never have a, a, a normal nine to five job staying in one city. 
a, we, I don't think we wanted to have a, that much of a normal lifestyle. I think we wanted to incorporate adventure travel and incorporate life seeking experiences and things like this. He's very, he's a very physical person and has crazy ideas. And it's part of the reason I fell in love with him. I think we both knew we'd have an exciting journey. We didn't know what it would be like, but I think we both had that expectation. Where were you in the marriage right before his diagnosis? We decided to try to have a baby around 2010. So when he was diagnosed in January, 2011, we had been actively trying to have a baby for about a year. He was, I had just a regular job. He had a job in environmental consulting, not that happy with. He was getting also his MBA in Tulane and we were trying to figure out what we'd do next. So that's where we were. And I remember there was somewhat of an identity crisis on his end, right? Because you go from being this NFL football player, millions of people cheering you on, running in these stadiums with standing ovations, and then it's over. It's over. And I think I've only experienced it through Steve and he's a pretty well-adapted guy. Um, but it was one of the hardest things that he's done is making that transition from the NFL to the real world. And he had a, he had a great job, but the corporate world is so different from the NFL that it was, it's a huge struggle and no one can really prepare someone for that. So it was a huge struggle at that time. We didn't really know what huge struggles were, but it was a mental huge struggle for him. Yeah, that transition phase. Tell me about the moment of getting that diagnosis. Where were you in your mind and body? Walk me through that. So we had actually been, I think two doctors before that had pretty much given us the diagnosis and we just didn't believe them. So it was kind of like at this time we were trying to find a doctor that would not give us the diagnosis. But the final diagnosis, the in this is the, the one that we finally listened to was we were in the Cedar sinai Forbes Institute in San Francisco. It was January 5th. We'd just taken a, a road trip from LA to San Francisco. And I guess by the time we got the diagnosis, we probably both in our gut knew that it was real, but we just didn't want to believe it. But at this point, we actually believed it. It was he and his mom and me in the room. And even at that time... I think I believed he got it, but I didn't believe that it would really affect him like everyone else because he was such a, you know, physical superhero and mental superhero. So, you know, they told us, we asked how many people have beaten the disease. And the doctor, I remember said, I think five people have beaten the disease. And so I was, you know, I was confident that Steve would be one of those. And so I think Partly numb, but partly just, I, I just, I just didn't believe that it was real. That's, that's where I was. I just, fine, he has it, but what are we going to do to beat it? Even though it's a terminal disease that with no cure, like I just didn't think it was real. I remember you telling me because with Steve leaving the NFL and the uncertainty about MBA and a job and you were in New Orleans and he sort of always have had these dreams of sort of living a more nomadic life. And that this diagnosis in a weird way brought you together because you were completely aligned and unified and same goal and same hope every day. Right. You know, we were at a rough point right before I got diagnosis because I was kind of ready to settle down with, with the family and he had not really gotten to, with the NFL, he goes right to the NFL and hasn't, had, you know, I got to kind of play around for a little while and then get a, a job. He really, even though... NFL is kind of playing around. You get you get long summers and stuff, but 
again, as I said, it's a hard transition phase. So he was, we were 28 and he hadn't really gone and messed around and done anything. So at this point he wanted to go live in a farm or go whitewater raft instructing. And, and for me, it was like, well, I've already had that time. Now I want to settle down and have a kid. And so if he wanted to be in the Northwest, I wanted to be in New Orleans. So we weren't, we weren't matching up with, yeah, we weren't unified at this point, but on January 5th, 2011, we became instantly unified in knowing that we are going to work, you know, work together to get through this. I don't know whether he's going to get a cure or we're going to work together to, you know, live with this successfully or whatever, you know, and New Orleans is the place where we had the most support. So the decisions were made for us and we were at once unified. Totally right. You mentioned something to me early on, unless I'm making it up in my head. <laughs> I do that sometimes. In the days that followed, in the weeks that followed, all of a sudden, this incredible wave, this pouring of love comes back at you and how powerful that was. Yeah, I think, well, right at post-diagnosis, we actually were quiet about his diagnosis for about, um, until he he went public in September. So from January to September, we lived like, almost like it wasn't real in that January to September, it was actually really hard for me because keeping anything inside of this magnitude is really hard for me. I can't keep a secret as it is. I'm well aware. So it was really what you're talking about is when he did come out in public and he, he announced it to the world in an article and our, you know, our close friends knew, but a broader span of people found out then. And yeah, that the support was overwhelming people exactly from college, from, from grade school, people in this, the city of New Orleans just loved him and loved, just gave so much love that it was like, it's almost ridiculous. It was, it was overwhelming and endearing and a really special time. Almost. You forget about the sickness. You just realize like the, the love, you know? And you guys decide to go on this epic adventure, traveling cross country and watching sunsets and helicoptering into the snow and skipping rocks and sleeping in a camper every night. What was that? I mean, just briefly tell me about that experience, that journey and what it was like for you. So we drove from New Orleans to Denali and um, the time, the things that you talked about were great. Skipping rocks. Steve was creating video journals. I was pregnant. So video, video journals for our unborn child um, it was Steve, myself, and his cousin, Brendan. And we got to go to, you know, see the most beautiful places in Canada and got to see bears in Alaska and like all these things, sleeping in this camper van and beautiful sunsets and sunrises. But it was actually really hard because there was so much that the landscape was vast and huge and lonely, you know, like it was just us three, you know, it was like, yes, we're going on this epic journey, but there's always something like you go to sleep at night, like, holy shit, like we're going on this journey because of what's about to happen. And, you know, slowly Steve was losing his, you know, motor skills. And it's almost just, you know, the, the elephant was always in the room of like, this is great, but this is sad and I'm scared and I miss my family and I miss people and I miss civilization and anything to make you, you know, your brain occupied. We had so much time to think that it was beautiful at the same time, really hard like mentally as well. But at the same time, I didn't want to bring that mental hardness in front of Steve. So I was always on because you don't want to really 
talk about the elephant in the room because then it just like explodes. You were pregnant during this whole thing, Mm -hmm. sleeping in a camper. Yes, peeing five times a night in the freezing cold outside of, yes, I I can't, I don't understand who I was. I would be complaining so much right now. Tell me how long after the diagnosis you guys decided to get pregnant. So we've been trying for a year and then the next step was in vitro fertilization. And I think we had to talk about it. Like, are we still going to go forward with this? You have a terminal disease. I'm going to be taking care of both of you. This is going to be hard on you, but we both talked about, you know, we're not going to give up all of our hopes and dreams of a family because of this diagnosis. We decided we're still going to do it and did in vitro when I was pregnant in February. So right then, and it worked, the the in vitro worked. So he was diagnosed in January. We got pregnant in February. I know Steve deteriorated really quickly, including on that trip and when you got back. And was losing his ability to walk. He was losing his ability to eat and eventually to speak. At that point, if you can go back in time for us, what did a day in your life look like as you began to be a caretaker for your newborn baby, Rivers, and Steve at at that time and space? So like I was talking about on the trip, it's like, I think what I did to be able to process what was happening was not to process it. So I'd rather, rather than really think about what was going on, just do whatever was necessary to, to get through the day. So I wasn't really prepared to think about how sucky it was because that just made me, I didn't want to go in like to a depressing like rabbit hole. So I just, I can't even imagine doing it, but I just, lack of sleep, I just kind of, took care of a baby and took care of Steve and didn't even think that anything of it. I just did it. And the, the busier I was, the less I had to think about it. So I just, I just did it. But what did taking care of Steve entail? He at first has stopped being able to hold things. So I'd have to, you know, feed him and brush his teeth, shave him, bathe him. So that's something I would do every day. Feed him smoothies, bathe him, shave him wipe him, um, and then help him get into bed, help him get out of bed. Rivers came. It was also the job of making sure that they maintain a relationship. So it was making sure, you know, if putting him in Steve's lap and watching him or, you know, showing Steve all the things Rivers was doing. And I remember as, as Steve got heavier to move and to carry, it was going to a neighbor, calling someone saying, I can't get him in bed. Can you come over? Sometimes we try to get him out of bed and it would take us an hour. I'd be pulling him up, trying to put him on his walker and then he'd fall back down. And in the beginning, it's kind of funny, but you know, after a while we're trying to get somewhere in 10 minutes and it would be two hours late because I can't get him out of the bed. It was like, this is not making sense. Sometimes he'd fall on the ground and have to call our neighbor to be like, please just come help me get him up. And this is all of this in conjunction with with the baby crying in the background. Yes. And, yeah. and sleeping and feeding. And you can see, you can almost see it in uh, a theory of everything. There's, there's similar things that happened to her in the, the movie and in Gleason. <laughs> Everyone tune in <laughs> Amazon prime free. Steve's profile at this time, he's going more and more public HBO, NBC, all the media sort of picking up on this story of this heroic athlete who's now in this heroic battle with ALS. 
and certainly in the city of New Orleans, become somewhat of a public figure. And I remember you saying, it's like I go to Whole Foods and I'm in the produce aisle and some woman comes up to me and grabs my hand and says, you're such a saint, you're amazing. And you really struggled with that. Why? So yeah, I I struggled a lot with the celebrity of it all because it's just a crazy thing to be a celebrity somewhere and then be at home. And Steve said it's, it's a juxtaposition, like celebrity in public. And then at home be dealing with, you know, pooping in pants or like, just like a complete at times hellhole, you know? So like the celebrity of it always kind of drove me crazy. And then me being a saint, it's hard because I, uh, I know it's, that's what someone sees of me, but I know the thoughts I have and the struggles I have and how hard it, hard it was doing it and being positive and not wanting more and not feeling depressed and all these feelings that I was going through. I don't feel like it was saintly. I feel like I was, you know, bad. It was like, I wanted to do it better. And I wanted, I'd see around me that there's certain people that were doing more for their spouses. And I was comparing myself with them and being called a saint is just something that is just not true of me. I'm not a saint. I'm a regular person who's struggling with something that's Sometimes I can't even deal with, and that's not saintly. Yeah, I get that. I don't like, I don't like it. It sets a, a bar. It sets a, puts pressure on me to be a saint. And I don't want to be a saint. I'd much rather misbehave and complain. Michelle, you're such a saint. <laughs> Let's move on to the next question, but I think you're a saint. So going back to the raising profile and the media coverage Super Bowl commercial, people are incredibly drawn to Steve and drawn to your story. Why do you think people are? What do you think they're getting from it in a sense? I mean, one way I think people, I mean, this is kind of morbid and dark, but I think a lot of time, a lot of times it's like they want, it's it's interesting. I mean, Steve is an interesting an interesting human, like living, not being able to talk, eat, breathe, move. Yeah. I think the whole thing's interesting. I think people relate to me. Well, the morbid thing is like, I think a lot of people are like, thank God that's not me. Like I could things, I think things are bad for me, but they could be that bad, you know? And like, I make jokes about it with some friends sometimes just like with, with his celebrity, we've got great access to places and get to meet amazing people. And we have a ton of people who care and love us and like care staff, like the people around us are amazing, but what we mentally have to go through is hell. Speaking of privacy beyond Whole Foods, somewhere along the way, Steve makes this decision to document his life for the time was for your unborn child rivers. And basically two young aspiring film students or aspiring filmmakers, Ty and David move into your house and are pretty much for fil- are pretty much filming every day of your life. There's like GoPros strapped around. <laughs> There's cameras on you. They're in the delivery room. I mean, literally everywhere you went, there was a camera rivers is having a temper tantrum. You and Steve are in a tense moment. I mean, the access they had to your life was extraordinary. I've never seen anything like it. What was it like having cameras on you nonstop? 
So in the beginning, it was actually exciting. So when they first came on, and again, when Rivers was born, Steve still had enough mobility and he also could speak. I didn't realize it would be a documentary and that millions or thousands or how many people have watched it would be watching it. I thought maybe it was going to just be like a, a 30 for 30 or something that's not that big of a deal. So we let them get super intimate and private. And at that time, times were hard, but they weren't really that hard. It was almost like it was more fun. And then we developed a relationship with them. Like they, it, it started getting hard, harder physically, mentally for me. And they'd already, you know, been like my brothers, been part of the family. So I was very comfortable with them and they knew their limits and they helped me with Steve and they helped me with Rivers. And at that point I was like, if you want to film this, I really don't care. You do anything you want as long as you help me with them. And they were taking on caretaking. I mean, they, they would take on a night of caretaking so you could sleep. They would take a 2 a.m. shift, yeah. which was like, it was like the most amazing thing that I didn't have to wake up at that 2 a.m. shift because Ty would stay up late doing whatever they did, eating fast food. So yeah, I mean, the, the, the love that I had for them, I was closer to them at this point than almost anyone because they really understood and got what I was actually going through. Whereas everybody else would like to come visit and then leave. And then I wouldn't say they'd judge me, but they just had no clue what it was really like living with someone with ALS. Because they were living with someone with ALS. Because they were living it. Yeah. So, and this is all documented in their footage, but the illness begins to progress to a whole new level. And it um, stops being fun. And it stopped, yes. The point where you guys are traveling and watching the sunsets and, you know, on stage with Pearl, all that sort of starting to change. At this point, we can't even get across the street. Like it's, it's difficult to get Steve across the street to go to our friend's house. Like that is, that's hard. I mean, things get really, we start kind of getting boxed in because of his respiratory failure and equipment and, and getting used to him not speaking. It just starts getting like, this is, this is not being fun. It's emotional turmoil. What, in that period, and I know there was also long stretches of days and weeks in the hospital, what were your darkest moments? I think my darkest moments were, you know, in a way I was losing, I was losing the Steve that I married. It was like I was going through the death of the man I married. So I had to experience the loss of, of Steve. So I'd I drive past where we got married and it would be depressing to me because like we can't roll, we can't roll across the bridge we got married anymore. We can't walk across that bridge or we can't do this, you know, and the lack of communication because he's just learning to, you know, he can't speak that well, or he's learning his eye technology. The lack of communication is terrible. And my exhaustion from caretaking every night is it's almost torturous and he's going through watching someone that I love so dearly having to suffer like he is suffering is, it is like a tremendously difficult experience. Also kind of the weight of the world of Steve is going to trach and not knowing what it's going to be like when he trachs that this is going to last for however long. Explain trach. So People with ALS, this disease, it's usually a two to five year diagnosis because you have respiratory failure, your your lungs stop and you're, you don't breathe anymore. And so you've got a choice to get a trach, which you get this machine that helps you breathe. So you're able to live longer. Lots of people don't do it because it, in turn, it takes 24 hour care and takes a huge amount of money going to caretaking and resources. So it's super expensive. And if you don't have the help, 
or the resources, it's, 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 it's almost clear bankruptcy to the family. And it's really, it's a emotional toll on everyone around you. So that sucks because a lot of people want to trach, but just don't have the resources to do it. It's a really tricky situation. Um, and we knew he was going to trach because we had rivers and we had the resources to do it. And we had the, the support and he had enough of a purpose to continue to want to live and change the world. But for me, it was like, this is so hard right now. It's so overwhelming with this and with raising a new uh, a one-year-old that I just, I just don't know how, how much longer I can, I can last. In all of this, and not everyone listening is going to know this. Maybe you'll pick up, go watch the movie. You'll find it out. Michelle is super freaking funny, as is Steve. So in spite of how heavy this all is, there was a lot of levity, a lot of dying, peeing in our pants, laughing. And so where did you find comfort and joy in the depths of all this darkness? I think definitely through Rivers, our baby. And we are, as you said, we're just both, we're, we're drawn to humor if you like take everything seriously or too hard, you'd be dead. We laughed and we also surrounded, we surrounded ourselves with people who could make things light and make us laugh and we could make each other laugh. You talked um, earlier about grieving the loss of the Steve you married, which I think just makes so much sense to me and also so complicated because he's still here. Mm -hmm. What do you miss most about Steve and the life you had together before ALS? I think the, the ease, I, I miss talking to him. I miss, you know, he is very fast in his eye technology, but it's very slow compared to like speaking with your mouth. And the lack of communication and physical contact is is just really, really hard. I miss that so much. Uh, I miss the ease. We, you know, we would travel places in backpacks every time. And now we travel with three caretakers and 12 suitcases and rolling shit show. Like, but actually we've gotten better at travel, but there's nothing, there's nothing easy about anything that we do, even though again, our care team makes it as easy as possible, but hands down, I miss communicating with him. And I miss, I miss like being touched or held or hugged or any of those things. It's just, it's, a, I really miss it. Eventually, the cameras that followed you for five years lead to a documentary film that eventually premieres at Sundance and is sold for theatrical distribution and television distribution. I was with you. You're at Sundance Film Festival, sitting in a theater with 500 plus people who so crazy. are watching your life, watching you... <laughs> pretty much spread eagle having your child, watching all of it, your life unfold. What is it like to sit in a theater surrounded by hundreds of people staring at a screen, watching your life, good, bad, ugly? I think I was bright white. I could not believe that it was hard enough to watch this with like a few people in the room, but this was crazy. I mean, yeah, like this, this room of 500 people was watching me give birth and like all the parts of the movie that like I'm insecure about, it would just like, I would like, I, I think I had my fingernails like digging in my palms of just like, 
embarrassment and nervous, like nervous that they'd like it and like approve almost. And, but I'm like, I'm not acting. This is our real life. And then watching Steve go through what he has to go through. Like it was, it was the most surreal out of body experience ever. So after the film and then, so that was one screening, there was countless on and on and on at different film festivals, at different openings and cities. But often we would be walking out and there would be a line primarily of women, literally like 15 deep waiting to talk to you after they've just seen this film. A lot of them were caregivers and they were so drawn to you and had just, you know, witnessed your journey as a caretaker. Um, What do you think the underbelly of caretaking is and what advice would you give yourself if you went back in time specific to that? Yeah. The people, caregivers are drawn to, they were so drawn to this because we, Steve and I both made a deal. Like if we are going to do this movie, we're not going to sugarcoat it. And we're not going to, I was like, I'm not interested in doing this. If it's going to be like a lifetime special on Steve Leeson and inspiration, like that is not something I'm interested in at all. Um, and Steve either really, but I wanted to show how incredibly difficult caretaking is. It would be like a lie to make the sugar coated, especially for people who are, are caregiving and not to make it look how truthfully hard it is because it is, it is that hard because you're always, you're always comparing yourself, at least for me to the sick person. So it's like, I want to complain about being tired, but I don't, I don't really want to complain about it because Steve can't move. And I want to complain about taking care of rivers, but I can't really complain about it because Steve can't even hold rivers. So it's always this underlying, and I'm sure people who are taking care of people with cancer or, or, you know, parents or kids, anyone, I think people go through, I guess maybe that's a little bit of like a survivor's guilt. You're not able to really feel or express your feelings because there's someone who is hurting so much more than you. And it's just an unfair, it's an unfair thing. And I also think as a caregiver, not caregiving as much as you want to is like quitting or it it shows that you're, you know, not strong or like you're not able to do something. And so for me, I think there's a little bit of, I'd see other people caregiving without help. And so if they can do it, I want to do it. I feel like I'm failing if I don't continue to do this. But the reality is the farther you go, the more your relationship breaks up with the sick person and the more you kind of die inside So to me, my advice to to caregivers is always like, you're not going to do this until you're ready, but giving up, if you have the resources, giving up some of your roles, the caretaking role to other people and getting help is so critical in the longevity of this journey. Well, you're not sleeping, you're wiping your husband's butt, you're changing tubes, and you become a nurse and not a wife. Yeah. I think. And we did it too long and that's what happened. And then there's resent, there's resent resentment on both sides. He resents me because I'm not able to do it. And I'm short with him. I resent him for being sick and making me do it. Like it, we, it was a, we had some dark times together as I believe most caregivers and spouses or not, or sick people Yeah. Do. And in every marriage. Yeah. And every marriage, every marriage. Yeah. There's, there's the same feeling. This is just times. Yes. A thousand. So you guys have a three month old baby girl, gray who I got to snuggle with last night when I got here. She was asleep, which is the best time to cuddle with a baby. Absolutely. She's so freaking adorable. And I saw her naked this morning, um, getting a bath after a poopy diaper situation. So walk me through 
the decision to have Gray and why that was important to you? I think for Steve and I both, I mean, hands down, the reason we did this was to provide a sibling to Rivers. At least we have this, we did in vitro with Rivers and we had, for people who don't understand in vitro, we had three embryos. We used two embryos to produce Rivers. One of them didn't work. And then we had one left. And so I was, I turned 40 and I knew I didn't want to do this past 40. And I really, I wanted to look Rivers in the face when he got older and say, I did everything I could to give you a sibling because they're that important to me. As I've said before, my two brothers are my best friends. Steve's close with his brother. And I think going through the journey, Rivers will really benefit from having a sibling. And so we're like, let's just do this. And I don't know if this is going to work. It probably won't. I'm 40. This embryo has been frozen for seven years, but we're going to do this. Um, and, and it just happened to work. It was one of the, you know, one of the easiest, it was a super easy pregnancy, very easy birth. And now we have this baby girl and who rivers adores so much. And like, I, we know it's the right decision for him because he is in love with her. He was proud of her. He said things like, you know, now I don't have to go through this. Like he doesn't say I have to go through this alone, but now I want to, now I won't be alone. And this is what I've always wanted. And these kind of things that we didn't even know. And I think she is lucky to have him as a brother. I think it's, I think we're both really excited, even though she's super high maintenance. Aren't they all? And I'm really glad that you explained the in vitro. (laughs) I was talking to our friend, Sarah, and I'm like, okay, I'm interviewing Michelle. And what should I ask? And she's like, well, I can tell you the question that everyone asked me. How'd they have that baby? (laughs) That is how... (laughs) We, it's like jokes of like the birds and the bees with rivers. We're going to teach people how we're going to teach them how people have babies. And we're going to be like, well, we made you and gray in a Petri dish. <laughs> <laughs> so technically you can be a virgin for the rest of your life and still have kids. Um, what have you learned about yourself that you didn't know before? Uh, I learned that I have a certain amount of patience but it's, it's worn thin. I've learned that I'm probably stronger than I thought I was. I think when I was young, I don't think that I could have gone through this and dealt with it, but I learned that you just, there's no other choice. So I think for anyone being in the situation that this is what you do. I learned about how to deal with guilt and shame. I, I had a really hard time with both of those things. And I think I'm learning to get past them and own own decisions I've made and feelings I've had, actions I've taken, owning them and being okay with them with feeling less guilt and shame, which I think is really powerful. Where do you want to be 10 years from now? I do. I think 10 years from now, as I said, I I still do have a nice amount of pain every day. And in 10 years, I'd like to grow out of this pain, let's say. I'd like to wake up and be able to experience all my, the the highs and lows of life without the underlying sense of pain that I have in a certain aspect of my life. All right. I'm not going to end this without talking about your art. So I'm going to tee it up. It's one of my favorite stories. So in the film, Gleason on Amazon prime, (laughs) part of the narrative in the film is about Michelle's art and it all started which is captured of her sort of in the hospital for endless days and beginning to doodle, which she's done since I have known her. 
it sort of emerges into these absolutely beautiful sketches with color pencils. Um, would you call them sketches? Yeah. Yeah. And they're gorgeous. They're, I mean, it's beautiful art that she's creating sort of in the depths of her pain and in these long stretches of moments of quiet um, in the walls of the hospital. And that becomes part of the story because it's part of her emotional release. So we're going to Sundance. Um, we were really lucky and gracious enough. Um, I, I think J.P. Morgan Chase, right, Sapphire, offered to have this premiere party for us on Main Street, which is like this great place to be. So we're all super excited. The designer who's doing the event space calls, we're talking about it. And I don't know who came up with the idea of what if Michelle's art is on the walls and people are at the after party and all of the art. So Michelle, who's never shown her art publicly, who's never really, you know, worked and blowing everything up, if that's the right word, I'm not in the art world, super large format framing. So takes the risk to which anybody who's ever framed anything, it's outrageously expensive to get all of her prints framed, then shipping them, which is also crazy expensive to show her art at Sundance. So we're literally like scurrying around working with this and she's having an art show just after she showed everyone her giving birth to her child. So she's like, if I'm going to put it all out there, let's just have it be today. And every piece sells. It's crazy. So she's at Sundance. People are like, I love that piece. I love that piece. I want to, I want to call. Can I get a custom? And that moment launched her art career. So now she um, is selling her art online. She's done some shows on the East coast and here, I believe. And not yet here. Not yet here. And you can see her work online and buy it online. And we have pieces in our house. It's really been cool what does art in your life mean to you? So art at the time, uh, the time it started was such a great emotional release because you have all these like crazy, I had all these crazy thoughts in my head, like going back to Denali, like there's so much time and space to have these crazy, like to fill my head with how long is Steve going to be here? You know, when's he going to get sick again? like just all the stuff that I'd, I'd, I'd fill my head with. And when I draw, all I focused on is these little doodles of like what colors to put in these doodles and drawings. And all of a sudden I would, I would make these drawings and then I'd be like, this is kind of cool looking. And then I'd like try to get approval from it. And people seemed to genuinely like, that is pretty cool. And then I kept drawing, kept drawing. And then my drawings would start getting tighter. And it was almost like this, um, I was drawing like a language that I didn't even know what it meant, but it was coming directly from all the emotional pain that I was having or euphoria of rivers or whatever feelings that I was having at the time. And it is, I would just like, if I was struggling, I would just literally get this drawing and start drawing. And it is, it, it was such a good, it's amazing. Like it, it was a life changer. It was such a good release. And then afterwards, I was creating something beautiful, which is just like art is like, and and I'm not, I've never, I didn't do well in art in high school. I would love it. I like art, but I'm just not artistic. I can't even, people don't know what I'm drawing in Pictionary, but whatever comes out of me from when I'm doing these drawings for some reason looks really, really cool. So now it's time for something I call rapid fire. Favorite food. 
Pizza. Favorite band? Radiohead and Pearl Jam. Favorite curse word? Fuck. Favorite sound? Right now, uh, I like when Grey coos the baby. Favorite weapon? Because I know you are weird and collect bows and arrows. I think I like my samurai sword. Favorite friend who was crazy enough to make a movie about your life that pretty much showed your vagina to the world? Scott Vegeta. <laughs> I mean, Kimmy Davidson. Culp. Second try. She got it. I'll take it. All right, Michelle. Well, since you're such a big fan of social media, where can we find you? <laughs> At M. Verisco on Instagram. I think that's right. Yeah. I'll double check it and record it at the end for you. <laughs> and more importantly, where can people go to check out your art? MichelleRayVarisco.com. All right. Thanks, Mish. I Thanks, Kimmy. That was great. I love you very much. I love you. All right. Bye. Bye. Today's interview with Michelle supports Team Gleason. Team Gleason is creating a global conversation about ALS as they work towards finding a solution and a cure. While they're at it, they're providing leading edge technology to ALS patients around the world. My favorite example is speech devices. Literally, this gives voice to the voiceless. Someone who could no longer speak suddenly has an ability to read books to their child, share a story with a friend, or simply say, I love you. Pretty cool, right? Thank you for listening to today's episode. And if you liked what you heard, please share it with a friend. And don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to All the Wiser Podcast. Have a great day. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.